0: Have you done any recording or podcast before? Not as sophisticated as this. Oh, this is not sophisticated. This
1: is- <laughs> And just let it be. We're pre- like we're very very good at this. We're
0: very sophisticated. <laughs> I'm Anne McNamee-Keels. And I'm Stephanie Chavera. And this is LAPS, a podcast about growing up Catholic. Before we get started today, we wanted to thank all our listeners who've been reaching out with emails and on social media. We really appreciate hearing from folks. We have been getting some really exciting feedback, some great questions, places where people are connecting. And I'm thinking, Steph, it would be exciting to maybe start to share those things on the podcast
1: absolutely every time yeah we have got an email i'm like i want to immediately shout it out because yeah. they raise everyone raises some interesting questions and also the connections it, it reminds me of when i first learned you were also raised catholic and yeah because i was like oh yes me too me too me too yes um, it's those moments And that's like the most flattering
0: thing when someone says that, like, oh, I feel like I want to chime into the conversation. Right. But
1: please either let us know that you don't mind it being shared, or um, we will follow up with you if you don't say that, because we do not want to share anything without your consent and permission.
0: That's true. So you can, again, find us on Instagram, at Twitter, at Laps Podcast. You can also send us an email. We haven't done this yet, but someone could record a voice memo and email it to us. I hear that's what the uh, professional podcasts do. That's what the cool kids are doing. Yeah. So please, someone wants to give that a try. We're ready. We're excited. So, yeah, reach out. So, Steph, do you want to tell the listeners what we're talking about today?
1: I'm thrilled to do that uh, because today we are talking about uh, things that are near and dear to my heart and things I still have so much to learn about, which is feminist and queer theology in the Catholic Church. So, so
0: excited and especially excited because today, in addition to being these things I'm very jazzed to talk about, we have our first special guest, Kay Kreisel. So Kay was raised Roman Catholic in Chicago, uh, like myself, very excited to dive into that. And except for one semester at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, has only ever attended Catholic schools. They discovered Wicca in middle school and converted immediately, as this was the first time they'd ever heard of a loving God. The patience, compassion, and sense of humor and passion for social justice among the Jesuits, we love the Jesuits, and school sisters of St. Francis showed Kay that there's more than one way to be Catholic. They are called to ordination through the Roman Catholic women priests, but the lack of financial aid available to non-male seminarians prevents them from the sacrament. Nevertheless, Kay has facilitated workshops on how church groups can be more queer inclusive and feminist. They're also a textile artist with a strong focus on Marian imagery. You can see their work on Instagram at Kay Creasel Art. Kay, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We're very, we're thrilled. Mm -hmm. So kind of to back all the way up, this podcast is a podcast about growing up Catholic. Could you start by giving us a little bit of an idea of your Catholic upbringing and what that looked like?
2: Sure. So I don't know if either of you remember the news from, I think it was September 2018, maybe 2019, there was a Roman Catholic church in the Avondale neighborhood of Chicago where a priest was going to exorcise and burn a rainbow flag?
1: Yes, I remember yes. that. Yes.
2: Now, I want to make it clear that was not the church that I grew up in, but I grew up very close to that church and mm. I knew that church and I knew who people who went there, and when that news came out I was not surprised at all. Uh, extremely xenophobic. I, I don't want to they would not limit themselves to homophobia, so I won't limit them.
1: How very open of you. (laughs) Thank you.
2: (laughs) Yes. uh, I only knew people in the parish. I didn't know any outsiders at all. So when they taught us in the school and at mass that there are only Catholics, they taught us that the Reformation did happen, but eventually the Protestants realized they were wrong and they came back to the Roman Catholic Church. (gasps) This is just straight up lies. Yes. And this was just south of Skokie which is a neighborhood in Chicago with a very large Orthodox Jewish population. Right. We were taught that all Jewish people had been killed in the Holocaust. (gasps) And they also told us that Buddhists and Muslims are mythological beings. They're not real. This was the 90s, by the way. My mind is like in the process of
0: blowing while you're talking. This is blowing my mind because I grew up – on so you were on like the northwest side of chicago is that right
2: yes if you're familiar with harlem and irving plaza mall or Gulf mill mall very close to there yes i am i have been to hip i've been to the target there <laughs> yep it uh, was it was a big deal when they built that target like all, everybody in church talked about that for months
1: i've been there it's a nice target okay. yeah i know i've been there but i think it's in evanston the holocaust museum hmm It's in
2: Skokie, right? Yeah.
1: They they were counting on us being very cloistered, and
2: they were right. Yeah. This is just so interesting because I, I mean, so
0: I often, I don't know that part of the city that well. I think of it as sort of the counterpart of the area. I grew up in the southwest side. I feel like there are these sort of, uh, there is actually a woman, Tanika Johnson, I think is her name, who does something called the Folded Map Project in Chicago that's looking at race and and sort of folding at the at the midsection of the map and looking at the north-south division. But outside of that, I th- I almost have always thought of like those Catholic enclaves as like a north-south. Like you fold the map and it's almost these sort of Catholic little white people enclaves that have... Oh,
2: absolutely. Yeah.
0: But these things, are- it's interesting what you're saying because I feel like that narrative was really different for us. I mean, we learned about the Holocaust. It just really wasn't even talked about. I have Jewish relatives, but most people around me... I felt like didn't know anyone who was not Catholic. So it wasn't talked about. There wasn't this sort of blatant, these people exi- don't exist, because I didn't even know what a Protestant was. Yeah, um, So it's just interesting that the narrative, even though I think of these places as so similar, that the narrative was so skewed. And that probably has to do too with, I don't know where it is geographically, what culturally is around. I don't know. That's interesting.
2: Well, I often say that I was raised in a cult. <laughs> because we we were taught that men can become ordained because they are part God, and they are part God because they can become ordained.
1: <laughs> nice loopy logic. Yes, exactly. So how old were you in your journey when you sort of realized what was being said was not quite in, uh, in line with reality? Well, I wouldn't put it that yeah. way.
2: Uh, when I was 12... I I discovered, like, Silver Ravenwolf and DJ Conway, those Diet Wicca authors of the (laughs) late 90s. And that was the first time that I discovered there were other options. Options. Mm. So it's more like, oh, there is another reality. Mm. It was still a very long time before I realized that the church that I was raised in was a group of not very many very paranoid controlling people.
0: Mm. So – but you continued with Catholic school into into high school, right?
2: Oh, I didn't have a say about that. I was going to no. go to the Catholic school no matter what. <laughs> Same.
0: Yeah. I mean, also, I don't know if it was like this for you, but where I grew up, like everyone went to Catholic school yes. for high school. It wasn't even... Did you go to a an all-girls Catholic school?
2: No. Um, my Jesuit high school had been an all-boys school up until the mid-90s, so... I graduated from eighth grade in the year 2000, to give you perspective. So it was one third girls. And uh, I will say that the faculty and staff really drove it into the boys to be respectful. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a creep. Like they're human too. So I'm very grateful that I was raised with that. Yeah. From high school onward, I should clarify. Right. No, the Jesuits were fantastic. Mm -hmm. It didn't sink in for a long time because... Uh, My mother was still very much in my childhood parish, so I'd go to school, I'd have a comparatively good time, like it was still high school, Mm -hmm. and then I'd come home and I'd be like, oh, guess what the Jesuits said, and my mother would be like, they're full of lies, I can't believe I'm paying for you to go there.
0: (laughs) So walk us through. I just want to hear more about your relationship to Catholicism. How did you go from there to eventually feeling called to ministry, also not being able to do that because it's the Catholic Church? Walk me. I just I want the journey. You're the main character. What What's next on your sort of journey there?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I was... Very passionately diet Wiccan. And I want to make it clear that I was not in a coven. This was not Gardnerian or Alexandrian or anything initiatory. This was still very silver Raven Wolf, whatever was on the shelves at Borders. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, which is where we have access to new ideas, right? Yep. We're about the same age. And I, yeah, I remember like the library or Borders because the internet wasn't really, it existed, but it wasn't what it is now. And so if you wanted to learn about something outside of what was just available to you, those were the places to look, right? That was like what you had access to.
2: Yeah. And the Jesuits were very supportive of me being Wiccan. Like even in my theology and scripture classes, they admired that I was so enthusiastic because I asked more questions and I was just a better student altogether than Mm -hmm. my cradle Catholic classmates. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they encouraged everyone to just explore and ask questions and i was finally introduced to people who were buddhists and jewish and muslim and it's like wow you're all real right. people <laughs> what a shock so this
0: was at your at your school there was religious diversity among the student body
2: yes I, it was still majority catholic but no no i i knew people from many different backgrounds hmm and then I went to Alverno College in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you haven't heard of it, that's okay. It's a very, very small, trans-inclusive all-women's college run wow. by the School Sisters of St. Francis. And I, I loved it there. At this point, I just took a break from religion altogether because I wanted Wicca to be more social justice-minded and I assumed that I already knew everything because I had read so many DJ Conway books (laughs) and I had been on an IRC chat room for several years. So clearly what else was there to learn? (laughs) Uh, But I, I was frustrated because I wasn't getting any opportunities to meet people in real life who were not creepy middle-aged men. And also because the few Wiccans I did know through Sage woman and circle magazine at the time, just didn't really care about social justice. Hmm. So I thought these are the only two options and neither are working. So I'm going to take a break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was really grateful that the sisters were very vocal feminists. I didn't know this at the time, but I found out later that Alverno was where the first conference of women theologians ever took place in
0: 1971.
2: Wow. Yeah. And uh, so much of college makes sense. Knowing that like, oh, Mm -hmm. of course, of course, the women's studies section was huge and mostly from the (laughs) seventies and I read all of it. And then I moved around the Midwest a lot and I was still kind of poking around spiritually to see if there was a community that might work for me. Like I tried the Quakers out Mm -hmm. for a short time Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate them, but I like a lot of stuff and, and the Quakers are all about no stuff.
0: Right. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite. No altars. There's no it's no bells and smells. It's like the opposite of bells and smells. It's like just quiet,
2: right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And then I started going back to mass and it was mostly just to see if it was as bad as I remembered. And I was shocked to see that it wasn't, because Mm -hmm. I was not going to my childhood church, so therefore it was better. (laughs) Yeah. And I started looking around for feminist Catholic information because I knew there had to be more than the School of Sisters of St. Francis. And I discovered the Roman Catholic women priests. I discovered Water Women's Alliance for Theological and Educational Resources. I think that's what the initialism is. And it was like falling down a rabbit hole. And this was probably... 2013 2014 and i began to go to mass more and more regularly and instead of just sitting in the back and being a spectator i began moving closer and closer and closer to the altar until i always had front row center Hmm. and i had to hold myself back from jumping up and saying that's incorrect if if the homily was was bad (laughs) i even tried a latin mass one time how was that Now, have either of you ever been to a Latin mass that you can remember? I have. So I have as a child. And then actually,
0: when I baptized my older son, it was at my childhood church had since become kind of a bastion for like Latin mass and Latin mass enthusiasts because the priest there was very conservative Yeah, and um, we got there toward the end of the Latin mass and I, I just was like what do my Protestant in-laws think is happening like do they think this is normal because I don't know what's going on <laughs> like there were just people doing things that I was like I don't even like women with their heads covered etc but there were like other things happening the hats there was a lot going on and I was like just to be clear this isn't the brand of Catholicism I'm familiar with With. Yes. It felt really different.
2: Yeah. It was like dancing with hats because they would take off the black hat and put it on at different times. Oh. And there were just a lot of men. It was like a small army. Oh. (laughs) I mean, the whole time I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Yeah. People really did this every week. Wow. Right. And then I walked out of the homily because now it started off bad because. The priest who did it, he was very, very old. He must have been in his early 90s. He started talking about how the Vietnam War was immoral, and he wasn't talking in past tense. Oh, okay. (laughs) And out of nowhere, during his multiple pages long rant about the Vietnam War, and by the way, he kept dropping the pages while he was reading them, all of a sudden, and then abortion and gay marriage are ruining the country while we are destroying Vietnam. And I left. I don't know what happened after that. I would also have left. I don't blame you. But I kept looking because at this point, I came to realize that aside from being around the Eucharistic altar, Catholic Church is Have a pretty wide variance between each other. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working at a Roman Catholic church. Now, to be fair, I started working there because I needed a job and they offered me one. Good reason. But I worked with great people. Like I worked there for five years and I absolutely loved it. I can tell you from personal experience that the parish secretary is the person who knows everything. So if you ever want to know anything about a parish community... Become very good friends with the secretary.
0: I mean, my grandmother was the parish secretary for decades, and I can attest to that.
2: Yes, she had all the gossip.
0: (laughs) She knew everything. And then after she was the secretary, my mom was the school secretary, and we used to, almost every day after school, we would go hang out with the parish secretary. (laughs) And now I understand, like, oh, yeah, she had all the information. She had all the real information.
2: Yeah, And to be clear, while I was trying out all these different parishes and just trying to get a better understanding of what Roman Catholicism is, I was still trying to learn more about Wicca outside of the mail-in magazine experience that I had used to have too. You know, the two align a lot more than a lot of people think. And I'm really glad that at least among Instagram and certain podcasts, a lot of other people on both sides are beginning to realize Mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. Folk Catholicism is making a comeback and several people could argue that it's always been there. So to clarify, folk Catholicism is making a comeback amongst white people.
1: Hmm. Always been there for others? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you think about Mexico and Central and South America and even... This is funny that you said that, because I just, because this is stuff I'm interested in, like I was looking into, um, I Googled the other day, what religion looked like in Poland before Christianity. <laughs> I knew some about like what Irish religion looked like before Christianity, but those are, my roots are mostly Irish and Polish. And yeah, I was finding all this stuff. I mean, not not that really surprised me, but like just finding all these things about the way that these festivals, et cetera, a, of the sort of Slavic religion that existed there had been incorporated into the way Catholicism is practiced now.
2: Oh, absolutely. So are you familiar with Our Lady of Herbs and the way that they celebrate the feast of the, oh, I don't remember which one it is, the Assumption. It was the one on the August 15th. Oh, no. Yes. In um, Slavic communities. Of course, that day is all about Mary, but they just have herbs everywhere, and like they bless bunches of herbs and they decorate her with herbs. Like, that's a very Polish and Slavic thing that they do.
1: Mm, interesting. I just I'm very happy to hear this. I have spent I, for many <laughs> reasons, but I, I when I was studying in Bulgaria and my family's Slovak, I was really taken in my time in Bulgaria by everyone. I was there in my twenties and how everyone in their twenties was also like smoking way more than I ever could. Uh, But also the herbs, like we were on a walk and people picking up uh, like they knew where their valerian root was for their nighttime tea. Like on their walks, like every cool kid, everybody knew their herbs as we were walking around. And it it makes sense. It was like a lineage that was really passed down. and, And you knew like no one was learning this in school. And I was really jealous of that kind of knowledge it was like i have a little bit from my grandmother my home remedies a lot to do with salt water and vinegar mostly but and pickling <laughs> everything but i love that i would love some more herbs involved in things i love it like Anne said i mean I'm, I'm very familiar with the the irish overlap with like saint bridget and easter and everything in terms of what catholicism co-opted from other rituals and other and uh, more ancient religions that have been around but I would love to know more about this overlap.
2: Where do you see it? Yes. Well, now to be clear, in case you couldn't tell, I'm really white. For a very short time, I was asked to come to a Catholic young adult group because I would show them a different perspective, which is why I didn't last there very long. But there's this monthly little booklet that comes out called The Magnificat, and they always have some kind of European Im- image of Jesus on the cover. And what I used to do to shock people, I would hold The Magnificat up to myself and say, who's whiter? <laughs> So just to clarify to people who can't see, I'm really white. So for people who want to learn more about Santeria, I would really recommend Lilith Dorsey. And there's another book that just came out called American Brujeria, which would be much more for Latina. So I don't know enough about that to speak about it, but those are the resources. Great. Uh, I know a little bit more about how to get rid of nasty things, because when you work in a Catholic parish, that is something that happens quite often. Mm-hmm. So uh, invoking, Catholics wouldn't say invoke, but asking nicely for St. Michael the Archangel to show up and dispel whatever nasty thing is wrecking your life. Mm -hmm. What you could do is you could knot some twine and give it to Our Lady Untier of Knots, which is one of the many aspects of Mary, and say, please untie my financial troubles. Please untie my marriage problems. And you can do a novena where you untie a knot every day and you ask her again, please help with whatever this problem I'm having. I mean, and then there's just novenas altogether and saint cards and medals. Mm -hmm. Like if you drive with a St. Christopher prayer card or medal in your car. Yeah. I think that we're already doing it and we've been doing it for a long time.
1: St. Anthony is a big favorite over here. Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I'm just
0: thinking about all those things that like I think my Grandmother, in particular, my great grandmother. Yeah, having having images of the saints, icons. I was remembering in college, I directed the vagina monologues. Actually, yeah,
2: was- awesome,
0: <laughs> very fun. You know, the thing to do in college. It felt like a big uh, accomplishment. Uh, so, and my mom, in a way that feels <laughs> very true to. Sort of the vibe of maybe the Southwest side rented a party bus and like brought a bunch of women across the city to Northwestern to see the vagina monologue. (laughs) Including one woman who brought her elderly mother, who was like, so it was this like Polish Catholic lady in her eighties who came to see the show, who loved it, and I really appreciated that she loved it so much. Awesome. But she gave me this a little angel pin, like a guardian angel. And the angel pin itself must have come from somewhere that was like some Catholic shop or something, and it had a whole thing on it about this is meant to remind you to pray, and this is not this is not for good luck. Like I think it really like this is not a good. Good luck symbol. This is meant to be a, a time, a, you know, something to re- remind you to pray and reflect, etc. This is your inner critic, <laughs> right? And it had a prayer on the back. You're supposed to pray, and then in the note, she had written, "This is a good luck charm." Uh- <laughs> good for her well and i don't think she even looked at what it said yeah my thought was that it didn't matter to her right like what this instruction was she had a way that she wanted to use this thing from the catholic store which is like it's good luck and you keep it in your purse i just remember thinking like yeah she was from my grandma's generation she's using things the way she's she uses them not the way she's being told to use them necessarily oh Mm -hmm. absolutely
2: no uh i did want to get more into the feminist and queer catholic part yes Absolutely. So do we. So I'm going to do a little bit of info dumping. I'm going to try to not do that so much because this is not a lecture. This is a podcast. No,
0: no. I don't know if you've noticed in this podcast how many times I say, I don't know. I need like a theologian or like someone who (laughs) studied this to tell me the actual thing. So please, please, we want to learn. All
2: right. So I'm going to start in 1943 Mm -hmm. when Sister Madeleva Wolf made it possible for women in the United States to pursue graduate studies of theology. That was the first time. Before that, women could not study theology at the graduate level, even if they were women religious who were teaching theology in high schools.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: Or in college. So even
0: sisters. Yes. Sisters could not. Wow.
2: Nope. So she made that possible. By the time that the second wave of feminism happened in the 60s and the early 70s, we already had women with theological degrees under their belt. Perfect timing. And this was also when Vatican II happened. So when Vatican II happened and we had these women with theological graduate degrees, a lot of them thought that they would get to be ordained really soon, before the 80s. And I have a pile of books here in case I need to refer to anything. So I've read about the the women religious community in California who became independent because the bishop in in their diocese was just so controlling that they said, you know what, we're just going to keep doing our own thing and you can't say anything anymore. Wow. And, Part of that came from their anticipation that ordination of women would happen really soon. Hmm. And when they realized it's probably not going to happen soon because we've been saying for years, oh, tomorrow, 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 then they just decided we're going to do our own thing. And that first conference of women theologians, a lot of them thought that they would get ordained very, very soon. Hmm. And the Bishop of Des Moines, Iowa, was one of the first bishops to provide spaces for women and priests to meet to start their spiritual formation for ordination because they thought, surely the Vatican's going to give us the green light any day. Wow. It wasn't really until the mid-80s that a lot of people realized, no, this probably isn't going to happen. And then I think it was in the mid-90s when JP Two said, no, women can't be ordained. And then the Roman Catholic women priests got ordained on a boat in the Danube River in 2002. Because Ooh. that way they were not in an official diocese. Oh. And of course, the two bishops who did it were excommunicated immediately afterwards. I I think they were both on the edge of retiring anyway, which is why they did it. Wow.
0: So how many women were ordained at that first? Do you know? It, was this like a whole boatload of...
2: I'm just imagining no, a boat. No, sadly, no. I th- it was between a, a dozen and 20. That's
1: still pretty good. Yeah. Were those bishops... From that area, do we know?
2: I know one was Italian. Maybe they were both Italian. Mm. No, they were both European, even though many of
1: the Roman Catholic women priests are American. Okay. That's what it sounded like this, that most women were in America trying to do this. But yes, I'm interested in those bishops taking a bold move. So I
0: I think I discovered the Roman Catholic women priest just on social media a couple of years ago. But what does that look like now? Are there parishes that are sort of like unofficial parishes that are led by women now? Or how does that
2: work? Yes. So just to give a little bit of background, I was confirmed in 2017. I was the only person in 8th grade to not be confirmed, which did not go over well.
0: See, you did the thing I was afraid to do, which is not be confirmed.
2: I bailed two weeks beforehand. Wow. (laughs) There was some pretty severe backlash. I'm impressed. Thank you. But I was confirmed because I wanted to acknowledge that the Roman Catholic Church has always and will probably continue to always play a role in my spiritual life, even though when people tell me that I'm not Catholic because I support women's ordination or because I support gay marriage and I support transgender ordination, I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong because I am not what their idea of Catholic is. Mm -hmm. And one of the worst things that anyone ever said to me was, you will always be Catholic because you were baptized. It's like I was two months old. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think that should count. I wasn't a person yet. So I pursued ordination because I thought, all right, I've been working so hard towards spirituality and community for so long. This is clearly just a part of who I am. And I think that this is what I'm being called to. I thought that they were very well organized. And it took a couple years for me to learn that's not the case. Each parish is pretty much an island. It's usually one woman who's been ordained. And she's probably in her 60s or 70s or 80s. Wow. And usually about a dozen to two dozen people go to mass and they might have mass once a month. And it's not going to be in a Roman Catholic church. It'll probably be in a Methodist or Evangelical Lutheran church or a church basement or in someone's home or Mm -hmm. in a community center or in a park. And the one that I went to in Minneapolis, it was in a Methodist church And the Eucharist had been baked by someone in the congregation, and it was gluten-free. It tasted like olive oil. I loved it. And they had grape juice. And the homily was very brief, like only a few minutes. And then we all had a conversation with each other. And this was when there were some pretty extreme immigration issues happening. So we just talked about immigration. And it was great. And they do have a lectionary that's much more open. I think it was written in Canada just for anyone who wants a more open lectionary Mm. and uh, women priests has become kind of a misnomer because the last I checked, there are two husbands who are priests together through the movement
1: Mm. and they are
2: separated by regions and they are supposed to have yearly regional meetings, but I don't know how often that actually happens because I pursued ordination for over a year and none happened. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So you're still in the
1: process of becoming...
2: No, I'm not. Uh, you have to have a master's degree in some kind of religious oh. studies in order to do it, but they don't offer financial aid. Tell us more about that. <laughs> oh, boy. So I was working at a Roman Catholic church in Austin, Texas. Ooh. I lived
0: in Austin, and it is my other... We've lived in the same cities. It's my other very favorite city. And
2: All right. Now, I will not say the name because I don't want to get them in trouble, but... But it'll be really easy to figure out who they are. It is the only Roman Catholic Church in the Austin Diocese that's run by a religious order and not by the diocese. Which meant, I wouldn't say that we were the most liberal in the diocese, but we were up there. And it also meant we had to constantly look over our shoulder to see if the bishop was watching. And they did support me emotionally in going to seminary to get my master's degree. I didn't tell them that I was pursuing ordination because that could get them in really, really big trouble. Uh, and I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want to make sure that I'm the only one who gets in hot holy water if this gets found <laughs> out. And I paid out of pocket. That was a lot of money. Yeah. I had a 4.0 and I didn't get any financial aid because I'm not a man and therefore I'm not an investment. Oof. And part of it too... I don't mind trash talking this school. I went to Loyola University, New Orleans, and they were really racist. There you have it. I believe it. It got to the point where I said, I don't want to study white men anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to school here anymore. So I transferred to a Presbyterian school. This is when you cross yourselves.
1: <laughs> Presbyterians. Presbyterians.
0: Yeah. I, um, the, I know I've talked about this a little bit, but the church, The Christian church that kind of brought me back to Christianity at all, I will say, was a Presbyterian church in Austin, Texas. Really? Which one? Uh, St. Andrews.
2: Okay. I had some friends there. Yeah
0: the pastor there I'll give him a shout out because he in the past couple years he's gotten on Facebook the pastor um, Jim Rigby it was his sermons and just the sort of vibe there the very social justice focused vibe and even the stuff he posts now that keeps me like I was not as uh, determined as you I skipped out on Catholicism I couldn't I couldn't do it I couldn't be that voice but in terms of sticking to Christianity it was a Presbyterian church that pulled me back in yeah I could see that what was that like going to that seminary
2: Uh, I only took one class there because that's all that I could afford. Okay, I will say the faculty were wonderful, and the students were wonderful, and the library was wonderful. I mean, I'm the child of two teachers, so I learned young, don't trust the administration. (laughs) And uh, I was told, oh, if you audit this one class and pay for it out of pocket, next semester you can enroll as a real student, and get financial aid. I found out right before Thanksgiving that was not going to happen because the diocese was not going to give me financial aid Mm. so that was why I ended school and formally ended pursuing ordination because I couldn't afford to keep paying for it out of pocket I mean at this point I had been paying for one class at a time that's all that I could afford and it's like I don't want to be in school for six plus years to do this
1: it seems so I don't know what the word for it is but that somebody with your desire to be ordained uh, to work in a in a ministry, that, that 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 money is the reason that you can't do it feels so counter to all the things that religion should stand for, which is open doors, access to the from the poor to the poor. It's very I guess frustrating might be the word for hearing the story. Yep. Thank you. And I do want to point out too that if someone has debt,
2: any kind of financial debt, they cannot become a deacon or a monk or a brother or a nun or a sister. But scholarships exist for cis men who want to become deacons or priests. It's actually not that hard to come by. Like if you go to mass regularly enough, eventually you're going to have a second collection to help pay for someone's tuition to go to seminary or to help pay off their debt, wherever that debt comes from. Those don't exist for people who are not cis men.
0: That is mind-blowing.
1: So you can't become a sister? I need to have, like, teacups nearby (laughs) that I can smash during this podcast.
2: So whenever anyone complains, oh, we don't have enough young nuns, it's like, yeah, because they have student loan debt and no one's helping. That's why. You can't become a sister if you have student loan debt. Nope. Or medical debt, any kind of debt. That is mind-blowing. There are a handful of religious orders who will have fundraisers or who can essentially have fundraisers to help pay off debt Mm -hmm. for women. But I mean, across the board, no, that doesn't exist. Oh, like just got the rage going. Did you ever? (laughs) Yep. So uh,
0: I have so many, so many (laughs) questions. Uh, What kept you connected to Catholicism and, and, um, what kept you committed to Catholicism? And did you ever consider going to a Protestant church? Like just going no. to a church that felt similar, but in, but like. I'm not a gay marriage.
1: <laughs> I love that response.
2: <laughs> no, uh, if, if you were here, I would just douse you in holy water right now. How dare you? Uh, no, I mean, if I'm going to go the Christian route, it's going to be Catholic or, or just not. Yeah, I mean, I want to clarify that feminist Catholics are still Catholic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And all of these Catholic feminists, especially in the 70s and 80s and early early 90s, who worked so hard to essentially make it possible for me to be here, they keep Mm -hmm. me going. Mm-hmm. So, even though there are many Roman Catholics, especially ones who have money and institutional ins- influence, they're not the whole picture. They're only a part of it. And I get to decide
1: how much they bother me, and they don't because I don't care. Nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I want to also continue to delve into like feminist theology, not just the ordained. Yes. Um, yeah. Women, I've said on a previous podcast, we've talked a little bit about Mary and whatnot, and that's the sort of stuff that I do love. And I'm in your boat, which is the reason I'm not practicing anything anymore. Is like I couldn't. I like the I like a lot of Catholicism and the stuff that other Christian churches don't have, like a lot of Mary. I'm like mm-hmm. I don't yeah. want you. I like I was like if you're taking Mary away from me, forget it. So yeah, I'm I'm curious, and I know Mary. Uh, I've looked at your uh, your art on your Etsy page, which we'll have to talk about as well. But um yeah, I'd love to know more about. What does it? Thank you. Could you let everyone know, like, what does feminist theology look like? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Oh boy, that's a very broad question. <laughs> I think that's the hardest question you've asked. You're welcome. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you.
2: Well, there's there's the conceptual part, and then there's the yeah. practical part. Mm-hmm. And the conceptual part can be how you anthropomorphize god and the practical part that's the the ordination part uh and i do want to kind of summarize where those two come mm-hmm. together but i want to show this book to you women in the word by sandra m schneiders and this was written during the 1986 Madeleva lecture in spirituality and if that name sounds familiar this lecture series was named after Sister Madaleta Wolfe, who made this mm-hmm. possible. Right. See, feminist Catholics stick <laughs> together. It's mm-hmm. a support network. This is why I stay. And Sandra Schneiders said, Catholic women are dependent upon men for the sacraments. And a sacrament is a physical expression of spiritual grace. So in the Roman Catholic Church, if you just stick to, I don't want to say normal, I don't want to say traditional, if you stick to the institutional church, then that involves dependence upon cis men mm-hmm. for grace. And feminist theology says there are other options in both conceptual ways, which can be the way that you pray, and again, the way that you relate to God, and also in practical ways, such as Roman Catholic women priests.
1: Yeah. I just wish you were around when I was in high school. (laughs) Uh Thank you. Well, it's funny that you say that, because I feel like... I
0: feel like I went to a school where certain people, the head of the theology department, who was also my homeroom teacher, and a couple other, mostly lay women, a few, we didn't have a ton of women religious teaching at my high school, but a few, were kind of slipping <laughs> slipping feminist theology to us as much as they could without getting sanctioned by the archdiocese, essentially. Yes. Um, So for instance, we were given the option when making the sign of the cross, instead of saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we were given the option to say creator, redeemer, sustainer of life. Okay. And some people, I think, were going home and telling their parents that and coming back and saying, my parents say that's not legitimate. And I was, I think I was lucky in that I got my homeroom teacher happened to be this theology teacher who taught. Senior year theology, and really, I think, was the driving force of the feminist theology happening. Excellent. Would say, Oh, no, it's a, it's a, it's, it, we're not the only ones who do it. It's a totally legitimate way to talk about the Trinity. Lots of theologians talk about it that way. It's totally, it's an option. You don't have to say it, but it's an option if that's what you want. Yeah. So, those kinds of things, or, you know, just opening up the conversation of what who is God? What does God look like? Taking a sophomore year Bible class where we were looking at the Bible in the way that none of us were actually like invited to really read the Bible before and our teacher going through and having us go through and to read these certain chapters that she had tagged, which were essentially all the times that God is described in a overtly female way, right? As a nursing mother, et cetera. And so this was just sort of slipped to us. And then it was like, it was almost felt like, though, they couldn't be too loud about it or they were going to get in trouble. Yeah. That's my sense.
2: And I do want to point out that the day that this airs, August 31st, Tuesday of the 21st week of Ordinary Time, I looked it up. Like I don't walk around knowing this, just to clarify. <laughs> we want to believe you do, and that's great. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, today, the reading, not the gospel reading, but the, the, other, the other reading, the one where people check their facebook uh that one does say that the lord will come like labor pains upon a woman who's pregnant Mm. a lot of these readings are during the week there are very few readings that describe god in a feminine way that you'll get on a sunday
0: i've never even thought about that yep Only the like old people mostly going and maybe a couple young people there, but I feel like the families aren't there. You don't have kids there, obviously, in the queues on those days.
2: And I do want to make a plug for anyone who's listening. If you'd like to learn more about the women of the Old Testament, I recommend Womanist Midrash by Wilda C. Gaffney, which I have right right here, all all marked up from seminary. I love this. I love this as a
0: show and tell. I love it. (laughs) which again, I feel like that was just a subject going to 12 years of Catholic school. I could name so few women from the Old Testament.
2: So do you know why Mary is named Mary? No. Is that? No, I've got weird guesses, but no. Okay, so Mary is essentially the kind of English version of the name Miriam. Right. Do you know who Miriam was?
0: Oh, from
1: Moses' story? Yes. Miriam's a prophet. She is named a prophet. Okay, Ooh. so Mary... Mary, Jesus's mom, named after or just like a nod to the name? No, she was named after the prophet Miriam. Get
2: out. Okay. And in the Quran, Mary has an entire chapter. I did know that. And some Islamic scholars say that means she is a prophet.
0: (gasps) I love that. Yep. Do you... I only learned about this recently. Do you have thoughts on the theological opinion of some that Mary Magdalene and Mary Martha's sister are the same person?
2: Uh, Yes, and I love that you call it theological opinion. I'm going to use that from now on.
0: (laughs) I didn't know how to call it the correct thing.
2: No, I I, know. I I think that is the correct term. It might not be used in academia, but that doesn't mean it's (laughs) not correct. (laughs) Now, the thing with scripture it's it's not a historical text it's not it's not supposed to be this is what happened this is historical like if anyone tries to put the bible in the field museum they're kind of missing the point of both Mm -hmm. Chicagoans will understand that (laughs) (laughs) I do think that the bible is an ongoing conversation like it's it's not the end And I think that having conversations about whether or not those two women are the same are just important conversations to have. And again, you can talk about them being the same as actual real people or a real person living in a real place at a real time and what that would have looked like being a Jewish woman living under Roman oppression. Mm -hmm. And you can also talk about them in terms of archetypes and legendary figures. So, right. Yes. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah. What you said about you know, putting the Bible in the Field Museum. You know, something I point out that I had never thought about for such a long time was like, in the US, in a library, what is going to be filed under religion and what is going to be filed under mythology? Yes. So if we something like Hinduism, and again, and, and even Hinduism being a religion that that is sort of a wide set of practices that was lumped together by Christians when they got there and said, this is a religion and it is one thing and just like Christianity is one thing. But um, yeah, there is such a fear of even talking about the allegory in the Bible, etc. and archetypes and all those things. I don't know. Do you think that discussion of archetypes, that feels feminist to me? Yes, absolutely. And this idea that, that it makes things less true if we admit the lack of factual truth all the time in the Bible and if we admit that something could be poetically true. And important, I
2: would say that's more of a problem that Protestants have, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, when it comes to talking about Scripture, what's factually real just doesn't seem to be as much of an issue for Catholics.
0: Yeah,
2: <laughs> it's much more of an experiential real. Yeah, uh, what I, I mean, I agree with you. My main thing with going away and coming back and going away and coming back to the Roman Catholic Church is. I try not to think in terms of we anymore because it really is just a whole bunch of individuals. Hmm. So I think that when you think about who is, who's in seminary, who has been in seminary and who's teaching seminary and who writes the books that are used in seminary, that's a small group of homogenous people. That's Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of white cis men who are either from the United States, Canada, or Northern Europe. So I think that it's a whole bunch of those individuals who may or may not have a certain level of gendered insecurity when they enter seminary. And then when they're in seminary, they're not around people who aren't white cis men. And -hmm. they don't read things that are written by people who are not white cis men. So I think it's really more just a lot of this information and a lot of these decisions are coming from a whole lot of individuals who spent a long, important time in a bubble.
0: And that's so many things, right? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like you could look at so many other powerful institutions and talk about that and those blind spots. Uh, Not even blind spots, just the sort of inability to see beyond, like you said, that bubble.
2: Yeah, that was one of the reasons why I did not lament leaving Loyola University, New Orleans, because it was very much a bubble.
0: Mm -hmm. So you now do workshops, right, about feminist
2: theology, and queer theology? Well, before the pandemic, yes. Yes. So uh, when I was in college, I was in the Rainbow Alliance. I interned at the Milwaukee Gay Arts Center and also at the Alliance School, which is an alternative high school for queer students who are bullied out of the regular schools. Hmm. And um, when I was working at the church in Austin, I was in the only Catholic queer group In the entire city. It was around for just a few years, but we had a great time. I'm really grateful for them. I used to be in an online queer Catholic organization, it was on Slack, and I I left because it was another bubble of white cisgender men.
1: (sighs) Mm.
2: But I love that queer Catholic spaces have been getting larger and more numerous. And I do want to make it clear that it's not new. I mean, the way that they are accessible on social media is the new part. And the way that they can advertise, we're this group, we're here, we exist, like that's new.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, are either of you familiar with St. Sebastian?
0: No, not off the top of my head.
2: Okay. You've probably seen artwork of St. Sebastian, he's a twink. and he's usually wearing just like a little thong like just a little cover that's that's it and he's tied to a tree and he's just twisting in agony so i mean you can kind of see where this is going (laughs) Mm -hmm. so the story of saint sebastian is he essentially was a twink and he was really really devoted to christ and he went into a temple where they were quote-unquote worshiping idols and he destroyed the idols i'm really summarizing his story and then he ran away and this is going to get a little gruesome they shot arrows at him and he essentially got arrowed to a tree and he died on the tree and he became a martyr and that's why he's a saint now During the bubonic plague, he became really, really famous. When someone has the plague, their lymph nodes swell, which means they had a lot of swellings in their armpits and in the groin area. So because St. Sebastian was associated with the plague, the arrows would usually be placed in those areas. Because it's like, please, St. Sebastian, pray that this horrible pain in my lymph nodes goes away. So... Of course, they would put arrows there in the statues, paintings, what have you. Fast forward centuries to the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of people thought at the very beginning that this was a version of the bubonic plague because it involved swellings and terrible pain in the lymph node areas. So St. Sebastian came back and was reclaimed by these gay men as the patron saint of gay men Hmm. because in some ways the, the diseases lined up. Yeah. And he became one of the patron saints of gay men altogether in the 80s. Wow. Which is something that you'll never
1: learn in seminary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. Or Catholic school.
1: No. I feel like it might be in Angels in America somewhere, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I probably learned about it. Because it does sound familiar when you're talking. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard, like, that that makes some sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm like, I'm continually interested because I feel like in high school for me, it was my theology teacher's reaction to our one out student that was my friend. That was really what pushed me out of being, wanting to be in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm continually fascinated by people that want to stay in the church, given their I know we talk about like it is a collection of individuals, but I guess the doctrines that come from on high uh, about queerness and who gets to be in the church. And I just like it just sticks in me in this place that just makes me very, very angry. And I'm like, I don't want to be a part of it. So I'm always fascinated. I have friends and family members who are queer that continue to be Catholic or and practice Catholicism. And I'm I'm floored by it. Um, so I'm curious about what you see as gen- gender exclusivity or queer exclusivity in the church, and where you—I don't know what, how you continue to 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 do that in spite of a lot of antagonism from priests and popes and whatnot.
2: I mean, this is more of coming to realize that the people who say, say those things really not that many people and even though they might have financial and institutional power that's not all of what being Catholic is. Like, being Catholic mm-hmm. is not about financial and institutional power, however much it might look like that sometimes. <laughs> There's a Jewish theologian named Judith Plaskow who's written about how queer theology is the natural outcome growth of feminist theology which I I think she's right like we could only get to this point of queer theology because feminist theology happened like once you start to begin to question gender roles like it's that's gonna keep going you don't stop at a certain point I mean for me it's still choosing to place my focus like I could focus on the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which wrote this nasty letter in the early 90s about how supporting legislation that protects gay people. And again, this was during the AIDS epidemic, so you know what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. They wrote how that's a bad thing and you shouldn't do it. I can choose to say, oh, these terrible people represent the entire church, or they were a group of assholes and I can choose to ignore them. <laughs> and I mean, today, a large part of queer theology has been the practical aspects such as same-sex marriage Mm -hmm. and ordaining openly gay priests. And I think now we're finally getting to a point of it being more of the conceptual. Mm -hmm. Like there are two post-seminarians, like one of them is out of seminary, Another used to be pursuing ordination. They're Methodists, like they're not Catholic. And now they're not anymore because of what happened with the Methodist church. And they're both non-binary. And they've both talked about how, I mean, across the board, most institutional churches are still stuck on the same-sex marriage question. And meanwhile, the queer community is now talking about what does it mean to be non-binary and how does that affect literally every other aspect of our lives? So if the Protestant churches are slow to catch up, To non binary theory. Just imagine how far behind the Roman Catholic Church is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, a part of that, we can go back to scripture because that's a little bit more solid. And I'm gonna plug another book. (laughs)
0: Please. I love I love your giant pile of books here.
2: Thank you. Transforming The Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians by Austin Hartke, H. A. R-T-K-E and again it's full of post-it notes from when I was in seminary and this book is all about how gender looks in scripture when you're looking at it from not a binary lens Mm -hmm. and for example a lot of people point to Genesis and the creation story like oh God created man and woman end of story and Austin Hartke points out well God also created night and day but we still have dawn and dusk. Mm -hmm. God created land and sea, but we have marshes. Like, we don't apply that same binary to any other part of the creation story. Like, we accept there are middle parts, and we have biological evidence that there are more than XY chromosomes and YY chromosomes. Right. It's a very new discovery that we haven't really fully explored yet. Thanks, Olympics. (laughs) Like, that's... If you want to know why we're having more chromosome testing now, it's because of the Olympics. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I mean, there's so much more in scripture. Like, if you look up all the references to eunuchs in scripture, mm-hmm. like, that's a whole lot of people who, even though they would not have used the term non-binary, they are very much living in a non-binary space. And it's not just something happened to make them not have penises and testicles anymore. Like They were living in a non-binary space. Mm -hmm. They couldn't own land, which meant they weren't men, but they also weren't women. They were living something else entirely. So we have scriptural evidence that firstly, non-binary people existed. And secondly, Jesus and Philip blessed and baptized them.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So whenever really any institutional church excludes non-binary people, they're not living up to scripture.
1: Mm -hmm. This may be too personal a question, so please feel free to say I'm not answering it, but it sounds as though while there's a living struggle with institutions that your faith has been pretty constant in a certain way. I'm I'm curious about your relationship to your faith, I suppose. Oh boy. Another big one.
2: No, that is a big one. Uh, So, when I took the Hebrew Bible class at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, the professor was a rabbi. Rabbi Neil. if you're listening, you were amazing, and I loved that class. And most of my classmates were either Presbyterian uh, or Methodist, and we had a couple, quote-unquote, evangelical. That means Baptist, by the way.
1: <laughs>
2: Thank you. Yes. The Venn diagram of Baptists and evangelicals or non-denominationals is a circle and um they asked rabbi neil about his faith and he said oh you guys are so protestant (laughs) 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 because that's the idea of faith being this thing that you carry around that's a very very protestant idea Okay, And it's the same thing as um, asking someone, when did you accept Jesus as your personal Savior? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's a Protestant question. If you ask a Catholic that, they'll say, I guess when I was two and I was baptized, but I don't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we
1: don't – we're just told we do. We yeah, did. exactly.
2: So my f- – faith like i don't really think in those terms that's why it's so hard for me to answer
1: i suppose i'm asking you because so much of my struggle when i finally after being the mischievous ccd student that i was and was (laughs) finally sent to catholic school as a ninth grader a lot of what i was being told was that my struggles with the church were actually my lack of faith and so i guess for me it's always gotten tied up those conversations
2: no I know I've sworn already do you mind if I swear again oh please
1: get to it
2: Okay, so I'm going to tell you right now, the people who said that to you were full of bullshit. I know. (laughs) Not just because that's just a a cruel thing to say to a child, but also Mm -hmm. because that's not a a Catholic thing. I mean, it's even in scripture. I I don't remember who said it. If Father Rich is listening, he'll be so mad that I forgot who said it. But someone said, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And the answer wasn't, you don't have faith. It's just... Okay, I'll help you. Unbelief or doubt is just something you experience. It's just a part of the human experience. I guess the only people who don't experience it are diehard lifelong atheists. And I don't, maybe they do too. I guess for me, my first like individual spiritual thought, like something I actually thought by myself and wasn't just regurgitating what I'd been told. This is not a happy story. I was in third grade and we went to mass all together, my whole class and I, and I was sitting next to Sister Keen, who was just a miserable, unhappy person who hated children. I I kind of feel bad for her now, but I also really wish that she had just gone away. Mm -hmm. She turned to me right after the priest said, Jesus saves everyone who accepts him and heaven is open to everyone and God loves everyone. And sister Keene turned to me and said, that doesn't mean you. Now I want to make it clear. I don't think she was talking about me. It could have been any child sitting next to her. And I, that says a lot more about her relationship with God and her relationship with the church and how unhappy she was being a woman religious. But when she said that to me, I remember uh, looking up at the giant Jesus statue over the altar and thinking, okay, either God exists and hates me and I'm going to hell or there's nothing. So years later, when I discovered Wicca, I was so happy to discover there was another option. Yeah. Now, back then, I thought the other option was Wicca. End of sentence. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: (laughs) I, I stuck with that for a long time. And then I began to get frustrated with it partly because of the meager community that I had just not being a good fit for me. And also partly because I hadn't dealt with the baggage of the Catholic church from my childhood. I really needed to work on that on my own and not through some other doctrine. And that's the main reason why I took a break for several years. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that I have faith now, but what keeps me going is the realization that there is another option And I don't know what that option is. Hmm. And I don't think it's something you ever really find out. It's just every day pursuing what is this other option.
1: I think some of my favorite conversations about religion or, or faith have been with my Jewish friends. And the conversation of being a constant conversation. One friend put it to me. uh, I can't remember who said this. They're like, we don't go to uh, service in the synagogue for answers. We go to ask more questions. Yes, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that feels very opposite (laughs) from from my world. (laughs) Where everyone's like, no, I know what's right. Yeah. There is no, yeah, there's lots of periods and not, and not as many question marks. So I lo- what you're saying is there is another option, but that you don't seem to feel the need to name it. Usually if I do feel the need to name it,
2: probably in a couple months, the name won't fit anymore. Right. <laughs> right.
1: Which yeah. is a beautiful transitional and non-binary place to put it. I like that a lot. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, when you are doing workshops, are you doing workshops on queer theology for practicing Catholics?
2: Sadly, no. Uh, the queer theology workshops that I've done, one of them was, oh, this is going to sound so frou frou, was for the Lily Endowment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, very NPR of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
2: And then I did another one for a Methodist university group in Seattle Okay. in February of 2020. So you can guess what happened after that.
0: <laughs> right.
2: And I've also been trying to get together. I, I live in Joe Davies County, Illinois, and I've been trying to get together with the Northwest Illinois GSA to do a workshop like that here. Mm. It's just been slow going, partly because pandemic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I would absolutely love to do that again. Yeah. It's just pandemic. Right. When I did workshops on women in the church, I was told that feminist theology was too confrontational for them because this was Texas. I did workshops on women in the church for Catholics. Okay, I mean, I would gladly do that for Catholics. I just think it's less likely that'll happen. Right. Or maybe
0: like the trouble you run into is when it's something that has to be organized and sanctioned by the people with the power and the money. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think you could find plenty of... Catholics, individuals who would be interested in having those conversations.
2: Oh, definitely. Yeah.
0: Right. But it's more about the gatekeeping that happens once the people who make those decisions and hold those purse strings get involved. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about your art and your interest in Mary?
2: Okay, sure. So... Everyone in my family sews. I grew up not knowing that a lot of people consider it to be feminine. Hmm. I was really surprised in late high school when people were like, oh, that's so girly for you. Like, really? (laughs) (laughs) And my grandma, she was the main person who taught me how to sew. And I always loved doing it. So just a little bit of backstory. My mother was the one who put me in that parish and she knew how awful it was. When the Boston Globe story broke the clerical sex abuse scandal, I didn't understand why that was in the news, because that was just so common.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, I thought that was really normal. And my mother knew that was going on and approved, just to, to summarize. And she didn't let me see my extended family for a long time. So they didn't they had no idea what was going on. So I didn't really grow up with the idea of having a loving mother which I think Mm -hmm. made it a lot easier to accept the idea of not loving God. So I got to know my extended family more in high school and in college and I love them. And that's really more when I got into textile work Mm -hmm. and it started with just sewing a couple outfits for myself and pillowcases and, you know, just small, enjoyable things. And then my eldest aunt, who was a master quilter, passed away a few years ago and she left me all of her fabric. Oh, wow. It was five rubber maize that I drove from oh. Minneapolis to Austin <laughs> in a Honda. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have a lot of it. And textile work is expensive, fabric is very expensive ethically made fabric is insanely expensive. So she really gave me an incredible gift that Mm -hmm. I could start to create art with textiles without having to worry about the cost. And I started creating Marian imagery, uh, images of Mother Mary, because I still really craved the motherly love that I never got in real life. And I've, I've continued to do that because it's become a lot of gratitude like every time I create a Marian piece it's gratitude for all the motherly love that I've gotten mostly through extended family members and through feminist and queer theologians and through my faith (laughs) (laughs) there it is and it's also the fact that I got these I'm able to do it because of such a generous gift from my aunt and also because my grandma worked so hard to teach me I'm the only lefty in the family, so she had to work twice as hard to teach me to figure out how to teach a left-handed kid. Wow.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. I love the the connection to your family, too, just even in the materials and in the the art form. That's lovely.
2: And a part of it, too, is I just, I don't want there to be so many white Marys anymore. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is to just create them myself. Hmm. <laughs>
0: I I mean I literally last Christmas took some markers our nativity because I like and and had the conversation with my 6 year I was like these people were not white to be clear and not just your little shepherd you have here and the one wise man but like there are no white people in the bible except maybe the people who killed Jesus
2: Good Just for you. <laughs> Did you like... say that to your six-year-old white people killed Jesus? Like that's very James Coney you. <laughs> I, I think I probably
0: said, I am trying to remember. I said, maybe it's for the Romans, something like that. I said, there aren't really any, I'm trying to remember what exactly I said, but. um, Yeah, but good for you. Yeah, I mean, well, and you know, six year olds are very into, um, well, at least my six year old, he, he appreciates accuracy and he appreciates fairness. So when I was like, you know, it's silly. So many of these books show Jesus and so many, like this nativity shows Jesus as white, but Jesus wasn't white he didn't have white skin like we would call white now and my son would go well well, then what the heck like that's ridiculous right (laughs) yes it is (laughs) yeah yeah so i think to him like well then why why this is ridiculous that it's not accurate it should be accurate so yeah i very i very much appreciate just that alone right i really appreciate that
1: i moved to new york to go to college in 1998 and there was like a slew of all my first protests were basically religion and art-based protests because I was protesting Giuliani before it was cool. Um, I was <laughs> Good for you. I went to a bunch of protests, uh, 1998, 1999. One was for um, some police brutality things that were happening at the time. But there was another, there was an artwork he tried to shut down and get kicked out of a museum and it was... I don't remember the artist's name. I need to look at all that. But they created a Virgin Mary using elephant dung. <gasps> yes, I remember that. Oh,
2: man. My childhood parish just exploded
1: about that.
2: Oh, so I remember I, I, didn't I was in Washington Square Park that. being
1: like, you know, art and religion. And, you know, that depicting uh, a Mary with natural mediums is not bad. And also, like, different color Virgin Marys are not bad. Like, it was all this stuff. But yeah, the fact that Giuliani decided that he was gonna walk on in and shut down the museum in New York was uh not good for him on many levels. but that you some of your there was a black Mary in when your Etsy shop, I can't remember, but there was something about your images that remind me of that of the artwork. So I was just like, ah, some of the same colors um in your Mary's that I love. Thank you. Is, wasn't
0: there a Black Virgin Mary who appeared in Poland?
1: Uh, Our Lady of, I'm going to butcher this,
2: Setsu
0: Probably. My grandma knew how to pronounce the very complicated looking Polish words. I never knew.
2: There are a variety of Black Madonnas, and that's one of the more famous ones. And some of the very earliest images of Mother Mary... I like more medieval images. She is black and some people, some of them are scholars and some of them are just very, very excited Wiccans. Uh, note <laughs> that those images of Mary look very similar to ancient Egyptian images of Isis holding the baby Horus on her lap. Mm. And I think in some situations, that is just a coincidence. And I think in some situations, like, yeah, people really were making that connection. Because
1: if you want to call the myths, the myths line up.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Of the virgin birth. and
1: Yep. You wanted to pick a variety of Madonnas and Marys in your art. Where do you, I guess, where do you get your inspiration from for when you start a piece? Well, I usually just go into the many boxes of fabric for my Aunt Pat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks, Aunt
2: Pat. Absolutely. And I also, I try to integrate more um, like nature imagery. Mm-hmm. Now I feel like a lot of people say that and it's just because, I mean, sometimes I encounter people who say the, they like to use nature imagery and I think it's because some people just really like flowers, which is great. Like really? that's, that's fine. There's this very common medieval image that made a resurgence in, I feel like I'm getting into art speak now in the modern era, meaning like a hundred years ago. (laughs) And it's this image called the green man or green one. If if you're in this century, it's called the green one. And if you go into some very, very old churches in the British Isles, you'll see a lot of these carvings of, it's either a face coming out of the foliage or foliage coming out of a face or both. Hmm. These were really, really common in churches like specifically churches these weren't just around these were church decor and there's been a lot of debate about why some people say oh these are the local pagans sneaking their imagery into the churches maybe uh some people say that comparisons are being made between the birth death death resurrection story and how agriculture works maybe And some people are trying to say that the artists were drawing the connection between heaven and earth. Mm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's maybe a combination of all of them. Or maybe you had one guy who was just good at that one thing. And they're like, oh, we (laughs) have to include him. And he's just going to do his one thing. Like, maybe that was it, too. But there's just been so much theorizing about what these faces mean. And it's just become this whole concept of where do we begin and nature ends and God begins. Like, are there boundaries between these three things? Are we all one thing together? So when I refer to nature imagery, like I do really want to inspire that question of how are we all related?
1: Where does one end and the other begin?
0: Mm-hmm. I love that.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking a lot about climate activism mm-hmm. and, the church yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and the stewardship of the earth Yes, that gets left behind with some institutional uh, leaders. But I think it's absolutely in the scripture and in what as so much of what we practice is, you know, we've got this beautiful gift. And so I I found it makes perfect sense to me that there'd be nature in our religious iconography. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, I feel like I could keep you here another, you know, hour and a half to three more hours, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I so appreciate just everything you've brought to this conversation. I would love to stay in touch and have you as a theologian on hand who actually <laughs> <laughs> has has some context in those moments where I go, I don't know. I just need an expert to explain how people are thinking about this or who has read the books, who has read the, that stack of books. I appreciate everything you've brought to this conversation. and uh,
1: Yeah, I'm sure we didn't even begin to fully delve into all of the things that you know according to all those tabs in your books I'm sure we could be here for quite some time I would love it if you could um, maybe take a picture of the stack of books you put nearby you I actually did do that good I just want to look at them right (laughs) absolutely yeah
0: and you put together a resource list which
2: yes I did well I put together two resource lists I put together one of feminist catholic resources and then one of Queer Catholic Resources. And there was one other bit that I wanted to add. Mm-hmm. Like I talked about how queer theology is the natural outgrowth of feminist theology. There are some feminists who disagree. I don't know if either of you are familiar with TERFs.
0: I am familiar with the term. Yes,
2: trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It's really disappointing that... What many people credit as the official first Catholic theologian, Mary Daly. She wrote a lot. Like, she wrote The Church and the Second Sex, um, Beyond God the Father, and a whole bunch of other books. Like, she was one of the first to really question, like, question in academia how feminism and Catholicism could work together. And her conclusion was they can't. She mm. eventually got really, really transphobic. Ugh. And she was just so foundational to Catholic feminism and it's because of her work that we were able to outgrow her work. Mm -hmm. Like we were able to get to this point of saying, no, transgender women are women and complementariness doesn't work. And gender essentialism isn't real. It's not based in reality, but within the Catholic church, we're only able to get to that point because of her work. Mm -hmm. So now we can look back and say, thank you. We're, we're done.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: She can be one of the many Catholics who you say, no, thanks. I don't want to listen to you anymore. But if you start getting into feminist Catholic theology, you are going to see her referenced. Mm. So I kind of want to say there will be difficult parts if you want to get into this. And it's okay to say this is bullshit that doesn't work anymore. It might have worked mm-hmm. in the 60s for some
1: people. Mm-hmm. A big part of feminist and queer theology is simply saying no hmm. Yes. Thank you for that. And because you're, you know, Chicago based, no, no relationship to the other dailies there, right? No, no. Okay, no, they spell it
2: differently. <laughs> but that's a good question. Thank you. They're,
1: they're a dangerous set those dailies.
2: <laughs>
0: So we have mentioned your social media, but can you just like literally spell it for folks? Where can people find you?
2: Yes. Thank you. I would prefer to be contacted through my Instagram account. Mm -hmm. Within the context of this podcast, this is the one time it's okay to DM me.
0: (laughs) Great. You've been given permission, listeners.
2: Thank you. So that is K-K-R-I-E-S as in Satan, uh, (laughs) E-L underscore A-R-T. So that's where I have my art. And that's also where if anyone has questions about feminist or queer Catholicism, please contact me there.
0: Great. And we do pass the virtual collection basket in our show notes every week. And that goes to our website. So... Is there an organization you would invite folks to donate to if they feel so moved this week? Yes.
2: I would like to offer the Trevor Project, Mm -hmm. which offers life-saving resources to people who, now I want to make this very clear, people who are transgender, people who think they might be transgender, and people who are just confused and lost. Mm -hmm. Like, There's no such thing as trans enough. Mm -hmm. especially for the Trevor Project. So I would love for any donations to go there.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. We haven't done that one yet. And that's an excellent organization. So thank you.
1: Now, can I, Oh, Stephanie, go ahead. No, just the way the last bit just like caught me off guard and it started tearing up. So (laughs) I'm really glad that you brought the Trevor Project to the podcast. Thank you. you. Now, can I close with a story?
0: Please.
2: Oh, yes. With some uh, queer mythology. Yes.
0: I am so here for this.
2: Okay. So- Mary Magdalene was a nurse in a hospital, and she went up to Dr. Peter and said, Dr. Peter, your patient Sophia is awake. And Dr. Peter said, I don't have a patient named Sophia. Who are you talking about? And nurse Mary Magdalene said, come on, your patient Sophia, you know who Sophia is. She is awake from her surgery. You should come and check on her. And Dr. Peter said, no, I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't have anyone named Sophia. And finally, Mary Magdalene said... Dr. Peter, your patient Jesus is dead. And Dr. Peter's like, oh, oh, I should go check on him. And then Nurse Mary Magdalene rolls her eyes and she picks up a breakfast tray and she goes to Sophia's room. And Sophia is sitting awake in her bed, awake from surgery, feeling refreshed and alive. And Nurse Mary Magdalene puts the breakfast tray down and Sophia says, thank you very much. Dr. Peter comes in and says, Jesus, how are you feeling? I'm surprised to see you awake. And Sophia said, Dr. Peter, I have told you, my name is Sophia. Please call me Sophia. And Dr. Peter said, don't start this again. This is ridiculous. You don't know what you're talking about. Come on, be a man. You know what's real. And Sophia looked down at her breakfast tray and she said, I know what's real. Okay, let's start and let's test to see if I know what's real. So she picked up a slice of toast and said, Dr. Peter, can we agree that this is bread? And Dr. Peter said, yeah, that's bread. And Sophia picked up a cup of grape juice and said, Dr. Peter, we can we agree that this is sort of wine? And Dr. Peter said, yeah, I guess that's close enough to wine. And Sophia picked up the hard-boiled egg on her breakfast tray and said, Dr. Peter, if we can both agree that this is a chicken, then can you please agree that I am Sophia and not Jesus? And Dr. Peter said... That's a hard-boiled egg. There is no way that's a chicken. I'm going to have you check to make sure we didn't give you too much anesthetic. So Sophia put her hands around the hard-boiled egg, and she breathed over it three times. And when she opened up her hands, there was a little chick sitting on the palm of her hand. And Dr. Peter said, Sophia, that is a chicken. Oh. Oh.
0: Kay, hey, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank this you for having me. Totally lovely.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to keep in touch with you. Absolutely. <laughs> but yes, thank you. I know you introduced a fair amount of people to uh, these concepts and uh, hopefully deepened the conversation for others. So we super appreciate you. Thank you. Uh,
0: oh, well, Steph and Kay, and also with you. Also with you. And, and also
2: with you. you.